Bibles, and hopefully you do. Please open up to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. And this morning's message is, God takes unbelief seriously. God takes unbelief seriously. Charles Darwin said that belief was the most complete of all distinctions between man and the lower animals. And then Warren Wearsby said of this comment, If this observation is true, it suggests that lack of faith on man's part puts him on the same level as the animals. One of the main things stressed in this chapter is unbelief. Unbelief of people who came into contact with Jesus Christ. All of these people had every reason to trust Jesus, but they didn't. All of them failed to trust in Christ, even his own disciples. And as we study this chapter this morning, remember the serious warning that the writer of Hebrews gave the Hebrew people, the Hebrew Christians, in Hebrews 3.12. He said this, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Because God takes unbelief very seriously, and so should you and I. The Hebrew Christians are being reminded here in Hebrews 3.12 that in their own past, in their own history, there's a sad display of this dangerous principle of hardening their hearts. George Mueller said this about Hebrews 3.12. He said, the gist of the passage is, you honor Moses, but do not forget that your fathers honored Moses too. And at first they followed him, and with him were receivers of divine favor. But your fathers turned from Moses, and in turning from Moses, they were turning from God. So God rejected them, and their bones were scattered in the wilderness. That is, those who started for Canaan, they never made it. And the, and, and the, the writer of Hebrews was warning the Christians, he said, Now you're in danger of repeating their sin. You have followed Jesus, but now you're tempted to rebel. And if you do, you will be rejecting God, and God will reject you, and your place in the household of Christ will be lost. With this kind of warning in front of them, they couldn't miss the seriousness of his warning to beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. The word departing in Hebrews 3.12 means they stood away from believing. They stood away from believing. This does not refer to those who had at one time been believers, but to those who refuse to believe, who stand at a distance, who stand alone, away from Christ. This was a warning to God's people, not an accusation. In other words, the Hebrew writer didn't say that they have an evil heart of unbelief. But they're being warned to be watchful against allowing themselves at any time to have an evil heart. Because unbelief means lack of trust and confidence. It means an evil, unbelieving heart. Even if it's not intentionally. If you carelessly allow a state of doubt, it's, it's, it's an evil heart. And now it's prone, even though subconsciously, to all other kinds of evil. And that's a scary thought, that the human heart, 
Even a heart once Christian can harden like cement and lose its yieldedness to God. So with that warning about having a heart of unbelief, we're going to look at now chapter 6 of Mark. Beginning with verses 1 through 6. Let's read together. Then he went out from there, that is Jesus. He went out from there and came to his own country. And his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joses, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country. Among his own relatives and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. In verses 1 through 6 we see the unbelief of his friends and family. Jesus left Capernaum on the first part of a teaching tour in Galilee. And Jesus and his disciples went to Nazareth. And it was on the Sabbath day when he was teaching in a synagogue. And those who were there, they were old friends. His ministry often was one of astonishment. We saw that back in chapter 5, verse 42. But here at home, at Nazareth, it was different. And many of the people who were listening to Jesus were astonished. But not in a good or positive way. In a negative way. And I think you might be able to hear it in the questions they asked in verse 2. Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him? You see, there may have been some kind of evil thinking thinking going on in their minds. Thinking that this wisdom that Jesus was showing and the mighty works that he was doing uh, were given to him from some other source of, uh, than God, like You know, Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. They accused him of that in chapter 3. Now remember, Jesus was ministering to people that knew him. They knew him well. This was his home. But these friends had no spiritual perception at all. Why is that? What was their problem? Why couldn't they trust Jesus and experience the wonders of his love and his grace and his power like a lot of other people had done? It's because they thought they really knew him. And you know, there's a lot of people who think they know Jesus. Maybe because they enjoy going to church or they they like the worship music and the the Bible teaching. They they like it. They, They just, you know, they enjoy it. But they don't know Christ. Jesus made that clear in Matthew 7, 22 through 23. Jesus said about these people, oh, on judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did a whole lot of neat things in your name. Lord, we performed many miracles in your name. But Jesus said to them, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. How terrible. Now, when Jesus said, I never knew you, he was talking about in terms of a personal relationship. These people thought they really knew Jesus. 
Now, Jesus was, was, was a neighbor for almost 30 years to these folks in verses 1 through 6. Many of them grew up with Jesus. They played with him when they were kids. He was a local carpenter. They knew his mom and dad. They knew his brothers and sisters. To them, Jesus was just another one of the kids on the block, a local boy. That's what the people thought. And in thinking that, they're saying, why should we follow him? <laughs> you know, he's just, he's just one of the guys, one of the, one of the locals. There's an old saying, and I'm sure you've all heard it, familiarity breeds contempt. In Aesop's fable, a fox had never seen a lion. And when he first met the, the king of beasts, the fox was nearly frightened to death. When they met a second time, the fox wasn't frightened quite as much. And the third time he met the lion, the ox went up and chatted with him. So Aesop concluded that familiarity makes even the most frightening things seem quite harmless. But this example has to be taken with a grain of salt. For example, can you imagine a loving husband and wife thinking less of each other because they know each other so well? Or two good friends starting to despise each other because their friendship has deepened over the years. The disrespect that was shown by the Nazarenes, and keep this in mind, the disrespect shown by the Nazarene or things that people think about Christ, what their thoughts are, what their attitude about Christ, does not change who Jesus is. And their thoughts and their thinking and their disrespect does not justify their choices of thinking who Jesus is. So the disrespect shown by the Nazarene said nothing about Jesus, but it said a lot about them. Because they had all the evidence they needed to believe in Christ and who he was. But they didn't. You see, it showed that they lacked spiritual sensitivity. It wasn't that Jesus wasn't who he claimed to be. The people lacked spiritual sensitivity and perception, and they were hard-hearted, which made them unbelieving. Again, to them, Jesus was just a carpenter. And, you know, to them, normally carpenters didn't do miracles. Or teach deep spiritual truths in a synagogue. It's not part of the job description or the trade. So verse 3 says, the people were offended at him. The word offended is translated from a Greek word, scandalizo. Which means a trap. A stumbling block to cause to stumble. They stumbled over Jesus. We get our English word scandalize from scandalizo. You see, they stumbled over him because they couldn't explain him. They rejected him. Because they couldn't explain Christ, they rejected him. Now, how irrational is that? And yet it's funny how we don't use that same thinking in a lot of other things that we do. But when it comes to Christ, well, you know, I, I can't believe in something I can't see. And I can't believe in something I don't know everything about. And it's irrational. Because there are a lot of things that we can't explain in life. Can you explain gravity? No. But it keeps you from jumping off a 10-story building. Can you explain how a microwave oven works? 
How about jet propulsion? One that really boggles my mind to this day is a TV. You turn it on, there's a picture, there's sound from across the world. Maybe to my puny mind, it, I mean, it, it, to me it, it, it boggles my mind. There's a lot of things that I can't explain or I don't understand, but it doesn't keep me from using them. But Jesus became a stumbling, a stumbling block to people because of their unbelief. They didn't understand him. They didn't know him. Let's look at verses 4 through 6 again. So Jesus answered them, A prophet is not without honor or except, except in his own country and among his own relatives and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. So Jesus answers them. And because of, you know, a prophet not being accepted in his own home. It says because of that, he couldn't do any mighty work there anymore. Except he healed a few sick people, according to verse 5. And verse 6. Instead of staying in Nazareth, he leaves. And he went on another tour of the towns and villages in Galilee. And he must have been deeply hurt by the rejection that he received from those who were closest to him. Can you imagine? The unbelief of family and friends. Now let's look at verses 7 through 13. And Jesus called the twelve to himself and he began to send them out two by two. And he gave them power over unclean spirits. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and to not put on two tunics. Also, he said to them, in whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So they went out and preached that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Verses 7 through 13. Now we have unbelief of his enemies, which you would expect. But nonetheless, it's unbelief. So we see here that Jesus sent his disciples out in pairs. And that's because it was easier and safer for them to travel and to minister together. And the Bible says the law required two witnesses to verify a matter. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 4.9, two are better than one. In verses 8 through 9, Jesus told them, don't take anything for your journey except a staff for protection. No bag for carrying bread. No bread. No copper in their money belts to buy bread. He said, just wear your sandals and one tunic. You see, there were to be no beggars. Jesus told them, don't take any excess baggage. You see, this gives us a picture of the urgency of the service of the word of God and a requirement of total self-dedication, commitment, and faith in ministry. We don't see a lot of that anymore. Jesus wanted them to have just what they needed for the trip they were going on, but not to the point where they stopped living by faith. 
In verse 10, Jesus tells them, as you minister from place to place, some people will welcome you and some are going to reject you. And Jesus tells them to stay at one house in the village and stay there until you leave. And this is so important for, for servants, especially those in the, min, in the mission field. Stay at one house in the village and stay there until you leave. You see, Jesus was saying they weren't to look around for better accommodations when it came to their food and their lodging. They were to be servants and not pampered guests. And, and, and over the years, I have seen some leaders that, that you know, here carry my jacket and carry my luggage. They were like pampered, acting like pampered guests. You know, they wouldn't help to, to set up chairs or something for ministry. You know, that was, that was, you know, that was everybody else's job. And I tell you, in my experience in going to South America several times, a lot of those people don't have very much. But they will offer you what they have. You know, a lot of them live in grass huts, dirt floors, no windows. And what they eat, it's not like we're used to eating here. So when you go and, and, and that's what you're offered, that's what you, that's what you accept. You don't go looking for better food and better accommodations. In verse 11, Jesus tells the disciples, if you're, if you're rejected, he says, you have my permission to declare God's judgment on them. Just like I, I brought judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And then when they left that place, they were to shake the dust off of their feet as a testimony against that place. And it was a custom for the Jews to shake off their feet when they left a pagan land so that they wouldn't defile their own land when they entered into it, when they came back to it. And so this gesture ordered by Jesus would be a way of saying that this village is heathen with the hope, with the hope that they would repent. And in verses 12 through 13, after the Lord's instructions, it says that they went out and they preached repentance. And they cast out many demons, anointed with oil, and healed many who were sick. Let's read verses 14 through 29. Now, this is, was Herod, uh, uh, these verses here speak of Herod's past fears and pretty self-explanatory. So beginning with verse 14, it says, Now King Herod heard of him, that is Christ, for his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, It's Elijah. And others said, it's the prophet or one like the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, this is John whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother, Philip's wife. For he had married her because John had said, Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore, Herodias held it against him and wanted to, uh, to kill him. But she could not, because Herod feared John, knowing that he was just, he was just, uh, uh, he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Then an opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a, uh, a feast for his nobles, the high officers and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod, and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, 
whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oath and because of those who sat uh, with him, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came back and they took away his corpse and laid it in the tomb. Now let's look at verses 30 through 44. The feeding of the 5,000. Verse 30. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. But the multitude saw them departing and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. When the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. Send them away, that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. But Jesus answered and said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? But he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Five loaves of bread and two fish. Then he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks, in hundreds and in fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish... He looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fish he divided among them all. So they all ate and were filled and they took up 12 baskets full of fragments and of the fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. In verses 30 through 44 in the feeding of the 5,000, we see the unbelief of the disciples. So we saw the unbelief of family and friends. We saw unbelief of his enemies. And now you see unbelief even of his own disciples. Here in these verses, Mark tells us what happened when the 12 disciples came back after their preaching and healing tour in Galilee. The disciples came back. They were fired up, man. They were excited. They were rejoicing over what God had done through them. And they were telling Jesus everything that they had done and taught. Now in the King James Bible, in the King James Version, verse 31 reads, And he said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place, and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so so much as to eat. So, you know, Jesus said, Come apart. And I like uh, the old country preacher Vance Havner said, if you don't come apart at rest, if you don't come apart and rest, you'll come apart. And surely you will. You know, you need to you need to stay healthy. You need to stay, you know, uh, nourished in in ministry. A lot of times it's busy. It's 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 long days. Again, here it says they didn't get a chance to eat. And that happened before in chapter five. You know, Vance, again, if we don't get the rest that we need we can't serve God very well. 
We need to take care of ourselves, our health and our strength. Remember, this body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You know, he dwells there. So verse 32 tells us that, that they did as Jesus instructed. They started to get away and to go have this time to, to regroup and to refresh. It says, but the people saw them leaving. And the people ran, down, ran them down on foot, getting there before they could get away. And they surrounded Jesus and, and the disciples. But in spite of Jesus' plans to go and find a nice, quiet place to rest and to regroup after they've been tired, you know, ministering all day, they're hungry, you know, they haven't had a chance to eat, they were interrupted by the crowd. But we need to look at the, the attitude of Jesus and the disciples when this happened. Jesus welcomed them. He didn't say, oh, man, I can't believe this. Just as I'm getting ready to eat. You know. No, he welcomed them. When Jesus got out of the boat and he sees the huge crowd, he couldn't help but be moved. It says in verse 34, moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. It says, so he began to teach them many things. Notice he used that opportunity to minister to them. And sometimes we have to take those opportunities to minister to people who need Christ. And in ministry, a lot of times, you know, people, you know, you know there's been times you're, you're just getting ready to leave for the day and, and you get this last counseling call and say, hey, I need to talk to a pastor. And a lot of times people, oh, well, you know what, you know, can you call back to late, tomorrow and, and maybe make an appointment and, 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 and you know, or, or come in when there's, no. At that point, you take that call and you minister to that person. You don't know what, what, condition that person is in now i've had calls with people on the line that were wanting to commit suicide do you tell somebody like that again whether you know or not you don't say hey well you know what call me back tomorrow you don't know what they might do after they hang up because they're in a place where everything else has seemed to have gone wrong and everything else has failed last thing they need to know is i called the church and i talked to a pastor and, and he didn't have time for me Jesus shows that here. He ministered to the people. He took advantage of this situation and, and had compassion. He saw them like, like sheep without a shepherd. And, and it says that he, he had compassion. That means, it means he was gripped with compassion toward the people. And the word compassion means it was a pity that expresses itself in assistance. There's a pity that just, you, oh, you pity the person. Oh, I feel bad for that person. I just, my heart goes out to them and I sure hope things go better for them. And I hope they find help and, and they find what they need. This was a compassion that was followed by an assistance to help them with whatever they needed. That's the kind of compassion that we need to have. Compassion that expresses itself in assistance. What can I do for you, brother? What can I do for you, sister? And this was obvious by those who were healed by Jesus. Look at verse 35. Find myself here, verse 35. When the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place and already the hour is late. Now look at the attitude here of the disciples. Lord, I mean, this is a, there's a huge difference here in the disciples' attitude about they, well, they, they felt towards the people and the way Jesus felt for the people. 
The disciples were tired and they were hungry. And this is a deserted place. Lord, it's been a long day. They say it's, it's far spent, which means it was almost over. It's late enough. Lord, enough is enough, Lord. We're only human. What was their remedy for the problem? Verse 36 says, send them away. Send them away. Let them go into town themselves and let them get their own bread. I can just see Jesus shaking his head. Just shaking his head. I can't believe it. Guys, how long have we been together? Haven't you learned anything? They hadn't learned to look at life through the eyes of the master. To the disciples, the crowds were a problem. Maybe even a nuisance. But to Jesus, they were sheep without a shepherd and they were in need. Jesus told the disciples, you guys give them something to eat. And their answer was, what are we going to buy with just a measly 200 denarii? You see, the disciples only had two answers to the problem. First, send the people away so they can find their own food. Or second, more money, Lord. And that always seems to be the answer to everything. More money. Lord, raise more money so we can buy a little bit of bread for everybody. Because as far as the disciples were concerned, these people were in the wrong place at the wrong time and nothing could be done for them. You know, a lot of times, again, <clears throat> money seems to be something that, that you know, if, if only if we had enough. But Jesus looked at the situations as, as a chance to trust the Father and glorify his name. And you see, this is what a good leader does. A good, a good leader is one who sees sees potential in problems and is willing to act by faith. Solving problems based on man's wisdom is what the disciples saw. They saw only only a problem and not a potential to glorify God. And that's usually what 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 we do. Oh, if only we had enough money, we could do something. You know, where God guides, God provides. It's his church. It's his people. He knows the needs. And God's going to meet that needs. If we're faithful, then we pray and we ask. You know, it, it just bugs me so much when I see preachers begging for money. And if you don't send it in, you know, we're going to, we, we know we can't do, we can't, you know, you know, or, or they have all of these sales and just, you know, making God look poor. When he says, I own a cattle on a thousand hills. If I was hungry, I wouldn't come to you. He doesn't have anything that I need. He owns it all. He's not poor. We're poor. We're poor. And apart from him, Jesus, we can do nothing. Nothing of any lasting value. The thing that we shouldn't do is first look at our resources. Okay, here's the problem. Okay, here's what I got to solve the problem. No, this ain't going to do it. We shouldn't look at our resources first to decide what we're going to do. 
what we should do is go to the Lord and say, Lord, what is your will? Lord, what is it that you want to do? Lord, how is it that you want to fix this, this problem? And then when we find out, we trust God to meet the need. So in verses 38 through 40, according to John 6, 8, 9, where there's, I love the, the description of this, um, this uh, feeding of the 5,000 in John 6, because there's Peter on the, on the you know, checking out the, the money situation. And, and again, we call him Peter with his, you know, Peter the calculator, because he was checking out the funds there. And anyway, you know, uh, this is where uh, in Peter, I'm sorry, in John 6, this is where Andrew finds the young boy with five loaves and, and two fish. And then Jesus has them sit down in groups on the grass. Look at verses 41 through 44 again. <clears throat> it says, And when he had taken the five, when Jesus had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves, and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fish he divided among them all. So they all ate and were filled. And they took up 12 baskets full of fragments and of the fish. And now those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. I'd have underlined the word filled. I'll tell you why in a minute. Or if you want to wait, fine. But anyway, that, that little word is really important. Jesus takes this little lunch. He gives thanks for it. He divides it among the disciples to hand out to the hungry people. And it all, they all ate. And again, notice it says they were filled. You know what the word filled means? Gorged. Gorged. They had way more than just a little bit to keep them, you know, going till they got somewhere where they could really eat a good meal. Ephesians, you know, 3.20. You know, God does exceedingly and abundantly more than we are ever able to ask or think. Man, when, when God's involved, he don't mess around. Those people were stuffed. The miracle took place when those meager resources were put into the hands of Jesus. As long as I hold on to them, ain't nothing going to happen. They're going to stay what they are. But when I hand over my meager resources and I put them into the hands of Jesus, something's going to happen. Whatever we give to Jesus, no matter how small, he can bless it and he can multiply it. And when they were all through, you know, uh, you know, just when they were all through eating. Jesus tells the disciples, I love this. He says, go gather the leftovers. And they collected 12 baskets of leftovers. Why 12? 12 of the disciples. And, and, I, and, and I'm wondering, again, Jesus planned to do this so to, to show each disciple, you know, pick up. The, the fragments, there was 12 disciples, there were 12 baskets of leftover to remind the disciples as they have that basket, never forget what I can do. Never forget what I can do. I mean, that's why we're to look back on what God has done in our life so that we will never forget the things that God has done. Those are, those are promises of things that God will do and is going to do. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Twelve baskets of fragments for each disciple. It's a reminder, disciples, of what God can do when you put your problems in his hands. Verses 45 through 52. 
Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now, when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on the land. Then he saw them straining at rowing for the wind was against them. Now, about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and they cried out for they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, be of good cheer. It is I do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat to them and the wind ceased and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled for they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. Notice that their hearts were hardened. Now, here we are, just like chapter 4. Now it's time for another test. Remember, they were tested when they were in the boat crossing over when the storm came up after that day of ministry and all the miracles and healings that, that they saw? Well, now it's time for another test in faith that would prepare them for future ministry. The disciples had just finished a success, successful mission of preaching and healing. Casting out demons, feeding 5,000 on, on, on two fish and five loaves. They just saw the miracle, like I said, of the 5,000. They were on a spiritual high. Now, spiritual highs can be dangerous just by themselves. Spiritual blessings have to be balanced with burdens and battles. If not, we become spoiled, like spoiled children instead of mature sons and daughters. Remember one time before Jesus sent his disciples into a storm. When was that? After a spiritual high of teaching. In Acts 4, 1 through 4, persecution broke out, remember, after the disciples and won 5,000 to the Lord. Spiritual high, battles. Spiritual high, battles. Each new experience of testing requires us more faith and courage. Even after Jesus was baptized, remember, the Holy Spirit came upon him and the Father spoke from heaven and approved of his son. He was then led immediately into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Spiritual high battles. The balance. In the first storm in chapter 4, Jesus was in the boat with the disciples. Now in this storm in chapter 6, he's up on the mountain praying and the disciples are in the boat out in the sea. What he was doing was teaching them to live by faith. And notice the Lord waited until their situation got so bad and they became so desperate that they couldn't do anything to help themselves. And sometimes the Lord has to let us get to that place before he can do something. Because as long as I'm struggling and I'm trying to help myself and I'm trying to fix my own situation, God will sit back and watch me struggle like he was watching them strain uh, trying to get across the lake. It's when I come to the end of myself that I will find God. And so the Lord waited until the disciples were out there. The situation got so bad. You know, they, they're so desperate they can't do anything. And it was, at the, 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 uh, it was about between 3 o'clock and 3 and 6 a.m. in the morning when Jesus saw them struggling. You know, in, in one of the darkest times of night. So, I mean, just think of it. It's, it's dark. The storm. It's, it, they're, they're struggling. They're desperate. They're alone. And they're freaking out. Why, though, 
Why was it that he walked past the boat? Why did he act like he was going to pass them by and just not see them at all? Because you see, I think Jesus was, was wanting them to be looking for him. When we get in those dark, desperate places in the deepest times, the darkest times of night, are we looking for Jesus? I think he wanted, he was hoping that, was, was wanting them to be looking for him. He wanted them to recognize him. They wanted him to trust him. They wanted him to invite him into the boat. But they didn't recognize him. Matter of fact, he says they, they thought he was a ghost and they, they started screaming with fear. But then Jesus comforted them. Be of good cheer. It's me. Don't be afraid. And in John's gospel, this is the place where Peter asked Jesus if he could walk on water. Now, the disciples failed their test. Why? They lacked spiritual insight and open hearts. I mean, it sure seems like the miracle of the loaves and the fishes didn't make a lasting impression on them. I mean, you would think if Jesus could turn a few loaves of bread and a few fish into enough bread to feed 5,000 people, then surely he could protect them in the storm. But even a disciple of Jesus can develop a hard heart if he fails to respond to the spiritual lessons that must be learned in the course of life and ministry. Again, look at verse 52. It says, For they, the disciples, had not understood about the loaves because no why? Their heart was hardened. The disciples of Christ, after all they'd seen and the times they'd been with Jesus, their heart was hardened. The lesson to be learned from these two miracles is that Jesus provides and he protects. He provided for the hungry 5,000 and he protected the disciples in the boat. The psalmist says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack or want. That means I shall not lack any needful thing. Let's close with verses 53 through 56. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and anchored there. And when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him, ran through that whole surrounding region and began to carry about on beds those who were sick to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he entered into villages, cities, or the country, they, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. These people had faith, and their faith was rewarded in comparison to what the people in Nazareth who rejected them. In Nazareth, remember, it said very few people were healed because they lacked faith. He did not do mighty, many mighty works there because of their lack of faith. But here he heals many because of their faith. They came to, hey, if they'll just touch the, touch the, touch the hem of his garment, we'll be healed. Now, faith does not mean you understand everything or that you know all the answers. It means trusting in Jesus Christ because when Jesus works, he never fails. And John says in 1 John 5, 4, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Close with this last statement from D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody said, Real, true faith is man's weakness leaning on God's strength. 
Real, true faith is man's weakness leaning on God's strength. It's taking God at his word and proving it by obeying what he tells us to do. No matter, matter how illogical, as A.W. Tozer said, or how all of our five senses contradict it. We take God at his word and we prove that we believe God's word by obeying what he tells us to do. Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful word, God. Father, we thank you for the insight that you give us, God, through the Holy Spirit. And we pray, Father, as in chapter 4 and chapter 5, we saw the wonderful works of Christ and then the test. And yet the disciples failed the test, God. In spite of the beautiful teaching, in spite of the witnessing of the miracles performed. God, help us not to be doubting Thomas's God. Help us not to have a heart of unbelief, God. Help us not to have hardened hearts. But to be warned, as Hebrews 3.12 said, God. To not have a heart of unbelief. That we might depart from God. Lord, may you just help us to continue to grow in your word, God, in our relationship with you. And God, help us to be servants. Servants, God. Lord, help us to have the compassion that Jesus had, a compassion that expresses itself in assistance, God. And that, Lord, when we have an opportunity, Father, to witness the gospel of Jesus Christ or to help somebody, may we do that. May we not send them away, God. May we not search for all kinds of reasons of why we can't. The word can't is not in God's vocabulary. For all things are possible with God. I know we know that and we tell others about it, but help us to to believe it and help us to live it, God. So Lord, may you bless my brothers and sisters here. May you take care of them this afternoon and watch over them. And we look forward to this evening, God, God, to when we gather together again. Uh, before your scriptures and you, God. Lord, we thank you for the offering that, um, Father, we, are, we will receive today. And God, we thank you for your generosity, Lord. We thank you for your faithfulness. And I thank you for the faithfulness of your people, Lord, who give unto you because they love you, God. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.